I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Some would say that it is dreadful timing to launch a book at the same time that COVID-19 has decided to go hitchhiking around the globe. But for one book, The Upside of Down, the timing is spot on. We're facing a massive economic crisis and a health catastrophe of mammoth proportions. The world is upside down and The Upside of Down highlights opportunities during chaos. The Upside of Down is written by the king of the business airwaves, Bruce Whitfield, who has the incredibly rare gift of making complex financial issues easy to understand, even for journalists. Through absorbing anecdotes, cautionary tales, some multiple choice quizzes, Bruce tells us that South Africa has extraordinary problems, but with extraordinary problems come extraordinary opportunities. The Upside of Down is sobering, inspiring, and in this terribly terrifying time, reassuring. Welcome to Amabuka Booker, Booker Bruce. Please, can you read us an extract from The Upside of Down? Jonathan, this is from Chapter 9. It's a chapter entitled Jobs, and it's got a quote from Rassi Erasmus. You never thought you'd see a rugby quote in an economics-y, business-y book. But something that's rung true to me is Rassi Rasman stood accepting the World Cup trophy last year into South Africa, celebrated its third World Cup victory since re-inclusion in the World Cup, uh, in the World Cup framework. And Rassi Rasman summed it up so beautifully, and he was asked about pressure, and he responded, in South Africa, pressure is not having a job. On to the chapter. About five or six years ago, I met an executive director at the insurance company Momentum. Frank Maguegue had an unusual story. After being fired from his job in an Eastern Cape hotel for helping himself to the drinks, he boarded a train for Johannesburg where he had a relative. His ticket only got him as far as Bloemfontein where he slept rough for a couple of weeks while working in a fish and chip shop to earn his ticket to complete his journey. Once in Johannesburg, he managed to stay with his relative for just three weeks before being thrown out. It was the winter of 1993. He slept rough, and as while he could, he was looking for any opportunity that might present itself. It was bitterly cold, and he routinely chucked out some of the, was chucked out of some of the best sleeping spots by police, who in those days patrolled Joubert Park and other parts of town, moving on rough sleepers. Frank befriended a hawker called Evelyn, who had her own stall on the side of the road. He would help her out in return for leftover fruit and vegetables that she'd been unable to sell during the day. He was useful for having, having around. He was strong, enthusiastic, and had a head for numbers. It wasn't long before his benefactor was also giving him a little bit of cash. He saved the money and kept sleeping rough while setting up a stall of his own. At first, he operated just one stall, then two, then a third, eventually employing people to run them for him. He would get up in the dark, make his way to the Johannesburg Fresh Produce Market to procure his wares for the day, deliver them to his team, and then head off to the Johannesburg Public Library, where he would read voraciously and learn everything he could before heading back to Stocktake, collect the money on his stalls that they'd earned during the day. 
After several weeks at the library, he was approached by a Mrs. Zimmerman, who'd observed his visiting patterns and reading habits and asked him what he was up to. Initially concerned that he was about to have his library privileges revoked, he was pleased to learn she simply wanted to help an enthusiastic young man make his way in the world. She advised him how to apply for a bursary to WITS, where he eventually obtained a BSc in statistics and actuarial science. Later, he gained his master's degree from the University of Pretoria. After years in the corporate world, Magwegwe now teaches others through Thrive, his own financial wellness consultancy. Magwegwe's story is one of grit, determination, and ultimate triumph over extreme adversity. To be able to wake up every morning after snatching sleep in far from ideal conditions, get cleaned up and presentable on a daily basis for months on end, and not only survive, but thrive, is extraordinary. Fortunately, that spirit of grit and determination is not as rare as you might think it is. In my day job, I am extraordinarily privileged to run a two-hour business radio show. I go to work every day, not quite knowing what to expect. There's always going to be some salacious gossip, the odd shock horror story about a company struggling through tough times, and markets will go up some days and down the next. Few days, however, could beat the one on which I received this letter. And then I'm going to pause dramatically, Jonathan. And if you want to know what the letter says, you have to buy the book, you see. It's one of those (laughs) tricks of the trade. (laughs) Before being locked up in the lockdown, I didn't mind getting stuck in traffic at six o'clock in the evening because I could listen to The Money Show on Cape Talk and 702. This is saying something because I don't know my NASDAQ from my elbow, but it did mean that when I read The Upside of Down, I read it in your voice. Has anyone else said that to you? <laughs> they have. <laughs> um, and, and you know what? It's a funny thing. I mean, the, the editor, um, I got an email from the publishers that I probably shouldn't have received. Uh, and the editor was very grumpy and saying, this sort of flow of the speech may work in the spoken voice, but it doesn't work <laughs> in the written one. And the editor did a, mar- did a marvelous voice of taking my ramblings, um, which, and, and again, I, I write as I speak. And when you 65,000 words into uh, into a book, um, you do sort of meander a little. So thank goodness that the editor pulled me back and uh, sort of made it a little bit more reader-friendly. But yes, I have been told um, <laughs> that it, it, it has my voice, which is, I'm also told is quite important when you are writing a book, that you've got to somehow retain a voice, especially when you have a voice that people are familiar with, um, that you need to have that voice, and that voice needs to represent itself in the text. So I'm delighted that you think so. Thank you. <laughs> Who did you write this book for? Ah, uh, for everybody who's fed up. Um, I, I got tired of the same discussions at the same parties and the same bribes and the same gatherings and the same airport queues and all of the same places where South Africa's negativity quotient had gone through the roof. Um, And I just became more and more aware of the fact that we were becoming very blinkered in our perspective on society, that we were looking only at the hard news stories on a daily basis. And in South Africa, these things come hard and fast. It's a rough place. It's a difficult place. It's a horribly unequal and unfair place. Um, And as a result, bad things happen all the time. And in our politics, as our politics deteriorated through the Zuma years and as Ntlantla Nene got fired and all hell broke loose and stock markets and bond markets and um, growth rates went to hell and the downgrades were coming, the negativity spiral was, was palpable and it was all anybody talked about. I mean, if you weren't talking about emigration, um, what were 
were you talking about? It was like going to a dinner party in Britain, I suppose, and not talking about Brexit. Nobody talks about Britain and Brexit anymore, and nobody I know talks about emigration anymore. They're just talking about survival. It does bring perspective, I suppose. And what I was trying to do in this book is bring some perspective. And, you know, when you live in a hard news world and a social media world, you're easily overcome by narratives, by stories that are around you all the time. And you start believing, I think, that that is all that there is because the structure of newspapers, the structure of radio news bulletins, the structure of the internet doesn't encourage. A, a widening of perspective. It doesn't understand, you know, uh, a wide-angle lens. If you think of an old SLR camera, um, you'd have a 22-millimeter lens that would just widen your perspective a little bit. We've got a very narrow perspective in South Africa, and we were... Does this mean you're a natural-born optimist? So this was aimed at doing that. Uh, no, geez, I'm a cynic. Uh, I mistrust 99% <laughs> of people all the time. If your lips are moving, you're probably lying to me. But, I mean, that's the fun of journalism, isn't it? Um, no, but it, it was... It was understanding that the world is not one-dimensional, understanding that there is incredible good in the world. And one of the you know, one of the comments that um, Nicola Klein, who's the dean at Gibbs, said to me, she went, you know, for a book called The Upside of Down, you do focus quite a lot on the negative. And I well, you can't be Pollyanna-ish about South Africa. You can't deny that there are problems. This is a very real place. People live, breathe, bleed, and die, and often not in that order. Um, it's a violent, vulgar place for so many people. People live on the bare bones of their backsides in abject poverty. And if you live in suburbia, you can be blissfully unaware of it. And, you know, most people's lived experience in South Africa is tough. I mean, there are global indices, global misery indices that um, do point to the fact that our inequality is of a crisis level. And if there's one upside to COVID-19, suddenly, we're beginning to have to acknowledge the stuff that is happening on our doorsteps all the time, the poverty, the hunger, the anger, the frustration, the, um, the real fundamental issues that make societies that function well, in other words, more fair, equal societies, stand out when things go wrong. And things are going quite badly wrong in the world right now. What financial advice do you wish you had been given as a teenager? I ignored it. Uh, <laughs> um, it was don't spend everything you earn, invest 10% of everything you earn, put money away for a rainy day, make sure that you always live within your means. Oh, my goodness me, we don't do that. I mean, I, 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 it's like the, the, the cobbler's children have no shoes, isn't it? And I mean, as a journalist, you know, uh, the vast sums of money we paid and we wallow in, in, in 10 cent coins, um, we get our feet wet with 10 cent coins. It's not a, the world's best paying career. So I, I wish I'd got, uh, I suppose, the advice of get a proper job. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is far too much fun. Um, you know, and, and you look at the doctors and the lawyers and the accountants and the people who take those skills and turn them into professional attributes. And yes, we've got a role. Uh, I just wish we got paid better for it, as do police officers, nurses, <laughs> an aspect, and teachers, I suppose. An aspect of your book that I thoroughly enjoyed was the success stories, the problem solvers who, against all odds, succeeded. You looked at what these billionaires had in common and found that they are incredibly smart optimists who are able to make decisions and park emotions. They have a growth mindset and have a cast-iron constitution for dealing with political risk. Although Christo Visser summed it up a little differently, he said to be an entrepreneur, you have to be quite mad. 
Does being mad help? I think you have to be. I mean, uh, ironically, that quote comes from an interview that I did with him just a week before Marcus Uesta stopped returning his calls. Little did Christo Visa know just how, you know, how he would be forecasting the future. Um, Yes, you have to be a little bit mad. I had a theory at one point, um, and I'd done an interview with more than a dozen CEOs, um, and I'd recorded videos with them, and I was going to use these videos in one of the, the many talks that I'm lucky enough to do uh, to, to corporate audiences. Um, and I, I was doing this interview with, with Christo and with Mark Lamberti and with um, people like the chief executive of Aspen and with Stephen Kossif and Brian Joffe and uh, Raymond Ackerman and, and, and Laurie Diplomat and, and, and all of these guys um, all happened to be, you know, older white men because they started their businesses 30 and 40 years ago at a time where they had huge economic, social, political advantage in South Africa, but they are success stories through the political transition of South Africa, and they've got worthwhile stories to tell. There was one thing they all had in common, and initially it was it's kind of weird that not one of them had ever been divorced. Um, and I, I just looked at all of this and I went, okay, so how important is a happy marriage then, or at least a successful marriage or a tolerant marriage um, to business success? And I was on a, a really good fast track to coming up with a brand new theory. And then I looked at Elon Musk and he's been there a couple <laughs> of times. I, I looked at Aliko Dangote, who is the richest man in Africa. He's a Nigerian businessman with huge interests in, in flour mills and in all kinds of things in um, sort of uh, Francophone Africa and now more recently in Kenya. And he's been married four times. So that theory went out the window. So the best thing I can think of is in terms of what people have in commonality is, yes, you've got to be incredibly bright. It doesn't hurt to be born with um, at least a spoon in your mouth. It doesn't have to be silver, but you do need, um, it helps to have a commercial advantage when you're growing up, not to be looking over your shoulder all the time. I mean, it's not a requirement, but it helps. Um, it certainly helps to have an outlook that enables you to look through noise and to be able to navigate noise. Because if you just consider the businesses that are referred to and the individuals I referred to a moment ago and the, the, the trials and tribulations that many of them went through, whether it was the oil crisis of the early 70s, the Soweto uprising of 76, the 1980s state of emergency after state of emergency after state of emergency, um, the Rubicon speech of 1985, the death standstill of 1987, um, the transition of uh, political power and Nobody knew what the outcome of that was going to be. I mean, it was a period of deep, deep uncertainty. But in 1989, uh, when F.W. Lutax stood up and said, I'm terribly sorry, but there is no money left. We can't keep this apartheid uh, malarkey going on any longer. We need to do something different unbanned political parties, released political prisoners, and that led South Africa on a very torturous and bumpy road to 1994 in a democracy and the economic boom that followed that helped everybody who'd managed to not panic and, uh, and had looked through the cycle. And it was the most advantageous period in South Africa's economic history to be in well-positioned in a time of extraordinary growth. And now we're living in mad times. And a number of quotes from your book I found pretty relevant, like the one from Terry Pratchett, (laughs) this isn't life in the fast lane, it's life in the oncoming traffic. But I think the quote 
that sums up what's going on rather perfectly comes from Nando's chief, Robbie Brosen. Um, can you share with our listeners his wise words? Oh, I don't have it in front of me right now, uh, but uh, you seem to have it in front of you. <laughs> Why don't you yeah, but I, don't, I don't want to swear on, on the show. And nor do I. But I mean, <laughs> uh, Okay, well, I mean, people the, have to buy the book to... No, to uh, I, I don't mind sharing it. Um, the and, and forgive me, if you are a sensitive listener or you are my children, or you are my parents, please stop listening for the next minute. Um, you know, so I, I like to <laughs> compare Robbie Brosen to Tigger, um, yeah. <laughs> because he is perpetually, perpetually happy. He's always bouncing about. He's always enthusiastic. Nothing seems to get him down. Um, most South Africans are very familiar with Eeyore because we're an Eeyore society. Nothing is ever good enough. <laughs> we're always dragging our heads on the ground. It's always like, isn't it a beautiful sunny day? Yes, we're all gonna <laughs> we're all gonna get skin cancer and die. Um, but Robbie Brosen is the absolute opposite of that. And I was in the airport one day. Um, remember airports? They're places where things called aeroplanes. Anyway, it's too complicated to explain here. Uh, but, but Robbie Brosen comes bounding over to me. And he goes, "How's it?" And I go, "Hey, Robbie, how are you doing?" And he goes. Hey, man, that's great. I've just been to Nigeria and I've just done this and I'm working with Kingsley Holgate and I'm off to Mozambique now and we're delivering mosquito nets and we're doing so well and we're eradicating malaria. It's so brilliant. So we chatted a little bit and he goes, hey, the world's fucked, eh? And I looked at him. Now, parents and children, you can listen back again. Um, and I said to him, Robbie, that language. Um, uh, and he said, if you, if you quote me, quote me directly. Um, uh, he likes to shock, does Robbie. And, uh, I mean, he's just the, the most eternal optimist. But he, he, the point he was making is that for all of its difficulties and all of the negativity that we you know, we wrap ourselves in all the time, the world is not a perfect place. I mean, if you just look at some of the world's most extraordinary political leaders right now. You got uh, let's let's just go Bolsonaro in Brazil, who seems to be a COVID nineteen denialist of epic proportions. Yeah. Kim Jong Un, who everyone thought was dead the other day, but <laughs> has taken this COVID nineteen crisis to lob a couple of uh, a couple of missiles into the oceans between himself and Japan, just to I don't know rock the boat a little bit, like we don't have enough to worry just about. Just to make the world a little bit more interesting. Absolutely, Donald Trump, who is. Just, I mean, his mismanagement of this crisis is nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, he's gone from record unemployment levels, a record period of unbroken growth, which he inherited from Barack Obama, into a deep recession, into the fastest period of jobs deterioration in the history of the United States, much, much faster than the Great Depression of 1929. And no sitting U.S. president yet, and this could be different, has ever been reelected when there's rising unemployment. So we could see some change there. Boris Johnson, God bless Boris Johnson. What an extraordinarily entertaining individual he is. A friend of his was once quoted as saying, Boris is so much fun at the party, but you don't want him driving you home afterwards. Um, <laughs> and he, he rides the Brexit ticket and becomes Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He and his advisors think it's a jolly good idea um, to, to get herd immunity going. And if a couple of old people die, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, they were going to die within a year or two anyway. So, I mean, a complete 
completely cavalier attitude to initially anyway to the health crisis until of course he had to go into ICU and be treated for COVID-19 himself because he insisted on shaking hands like a twit. Um, uh, and you go across to Erdogan in Turkey who is a very powerful individual. You've got Vladimir Putin sitting in Russia, extraordinarily powerful. You've got um, a, a very, very powerful and dictatorial leadership um, in China which is, you know, does a remarkable job of managing the economy, but it's not a very nice place to live. Um, and and, and his, the, the point of Robbie Brosen was the world has got its problems. Everybody's got its problems. Yes, South Africa has massive, accent, accentuates its problems in so many cruel and dreadful ways. But my goodness me, if we obsess about that, there is no way we're ever going to see the good. And there's a hell of a lot of good. Which things that were completely normal three months ago are now completely bizarre and unthinkable for you? Driving on the road, because I, mm. I, I do, I, I'm, a, I'm essential. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a seven and an 11-year-old, and my seven-year-old said to me the other day, Dad, if you're essential, does it mean you're important? <laughs> and I went, well, I, 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 and the 11-year-old chirped in, no, it just means that you're necessary. Um, so I, 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 I'm, uh, I have a necessary job, which requires me to drive um, uh, through my suburb and onto a highway and then into town and wiggle, wiggle, wiggle and get to a radio studio. Um, and uh, the, the, the thing that is bizarre is just how few cars there were two or three weeks ago and how many cars there are now. But I was the only person on the road the other day when a car came up and nearly rear-ended me, for example. That's one of the bizarre things. That's, you know, mm. It's just as dangerous on the roads, whether there are a thousand of us or two of us. Um, and yeah, the, the, the world is kind of weird. And it feels prickly and it feels you know, like there is an anger building as the business community is losing patience with government at the moment and wants um, uh, to to escalate the to the opening of business and allow more businesses to, to operate. Um, we have a broken car in the family right now that needs to be repaired. And I phoned the garage yesterday and they've got somebody answering the phone, but they can only open at level three. And there's weird kind of disconnects. But at the same time, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is not a journalist, thank goodness. Um, Boris Johnson is a, is a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's taking advice from epidemiologists. He's taking advice from scientists. He's taking advice from economists and all kinds of people. The last thing he wants to do in this process is open up the economy and let us all think it's all over, see a massive spike in infections and a rise in deaths. And we've been so remarkable at containing the health crisis. But at some point, we're going to have to find the balance, aren't we, between Mm. allowing people to be treated like grown-ups and businesses to be treated like grown-ups and really nailing those that let us down, but enabling those who are responsible and grown-up enough uh, to go out and go about their business. I don't know about you, but I know that I am not going to behave to tomorrow, if, if if everything opened up like I did three months ago, I'm not going to be going yeah. to restaurants. I'm not going to be going to the movies if they ever open again. I'm not, you know, no matter what James Bond movie is coming, I'm looking forward to it, but I can wait for it to come onto Netflix. Um, and we are going to, we are going to amend our habits. We're going to change the way we interact until there is a cure for COVID-19. So I think it's what, what's weird is that in the short term, and I don't think it's a long-term change, but in the short term, we've all grown up a hell of a lot to become a lot more appreciative, frankly, of the life that we had and the life that we hope we can have again in the not-too-distant future. Have you learned any lessons about yourself during this lockdown? My wife is a remarkable 
individual, but that's not about myself. I, 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 <laughs> um, I mean, goodness me, she's. She, I mean, I've got, got to try and make the living, and she's doing the. Uh, she, she's doing the homeschooling and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, you learn that you have to become resourceful. You learn that you know when your income dries up, seventy percent of your income dries up overnight because just the world operates differently, and everybody goes, "Oh, we can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this." You also realize that you're very lucky to have a job that does pay, um, and that you are very lucky to have a book uh, that is on the shelves, even though they're behind a door and they're sitting and nobody can actually access the books, but suddenly people have been able to access the books and Uber Eats is delivering them. I think I've learned gratitude in a way that I'd forgotten about. Um, mm. You know, you become so ambivalent about the world and it's just the way things work. And I travel a hell of a lot and I spend an awful lot of time away from home because I'm very lucky to be incredibly busy doing multiple things. But suddenly when that stops and it's awful and you go, <gasps> I've been a bad boy and I've not, you know, the, 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 the emergency fund isn't what it should be. And, oh, my goodness gracious me. And let's go through our bank accounts and see what we can cut. And I think hopefully we've all done that. Um, and you suddenly go, hold on a second. What's really important? And it's that reevaluation. It's a forced reevaluation, which I hope we don't forget when we're allowed to go back to a normal of whatever kind. Because I think they're very valuable lessons. I mean, I, my kids are charming and clever and funny. There is going to be a DNA test, by the way, at the end of this. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe they're mine, not for a moment. <laughs> but, but again, they've been remarkable through an incredibly difficult period. I mean, geez, like, mm. kids are missing their mates and kids are, uh, and it's not natural to be learning uh, over a computer, but thank goodness they have got them and thank goodness they're able to do that. And thank goodness their school is proactive enough to do it. There are many, many kids who simply can't and are having to sit mm. at home watching the SABC. I mean, that's punishment. I mean, that's like detention forever. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really rough here. You, you mentioned that um, one of the upsides of COVID-19 could be that the country wakes up to the inequalities in the country. What are other lessons that South Africa can take from this catastrophe to build a better future? Uh, you know, I, I describe in one of the chapters, the, I mean, the, the economics chapter, and I say South Africa is not unequal. South Africa is unfair. And I call it unfair because if you say it's unequal, then it's inevitable. It's like, well, everywhere is unequal. Everything is like the world's an unfair, unequal place. I mean, of course, some people have got money and some people don't. Um, and that's just the way the world is. And if you're smart, then you succeed. If you fail, well, then that's your own stupid fault. Um, but when you're you know, trying to compete in an economy with, you know, up, until, up, up until 1994 with both hands tied behind your back and now with one hand tied behind your back and your ankle sort of trussed up because you simply don't have the uncle with the trust fund that can help you start your first business or you don't have access or you've had a lousy education and Bantu education and then you're subjected to whatever South African government's been doing for the last 25 years in terms of its various modes of education and the teachers are rubbish and you've not been treated fairly in society. Um, I think what we've come to realize, and I hope we've come to realize, is you don't get to keep your flouncy, lovely champagne lifestyle unless you start really tackling the issues of inequality, because inequality is unfair. It is unfair that somebody who happens to be born in an environment that doesn't give them your advantages, whether you perceive those advantages or not, um, is expected to live a life parallel to yours, which is grotesque. Of course, there's always going to be inequality and some people are going to be better off than others. 
But I don't know, know when last you went through some of the the, 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 the tougher parts of Alex or one of the, some of the tougher parts of, of Deep Sluit. And, the, you know, if you're in Cape Town and you go into Kailicha, these are places where people have to survive. And they do. And they do remarkably well. And there are vibrant economies where people are hustling and people are doing amazing stuff. But, jeez, like, it just – the barriers to success in South Africa are so skewed to our history – and somehow, I mean, we've also, I think, learned in this process how important billionaires are. I just looked at the tax statistics. I mean, this is part of my exciting day job, but in the national <laughs> budget, I, I, just, I just looked at how many people actually pay income tax in South Africa and who's responsible for what. And just one fact to bore a hole in your brain, there's only 120,000 people in South Africa pay the marginal tax rate of 45%. So it means that only 120,000 people in South Africa earn more than one and a half million rand a year. I mean, some of those 120,000 earn considerably more than that. But the vast majority of people don't pay any income tax simply because the jobs that they do don't warrant the sort of salaries. And we hold ourselves back as a society, as a country, as an economy, as a result of this deep structural inequality. So don't rip down the rich guys, utilize the skills and the abilities and let the rich guys build businesses that create the jobs and the opportunities and the skills and the training um, to, to help liberate people's minds and their, their, their role in the economy. And you get a far fairer society a generation or two from here. But yo, it is tough. Um, you know, um, and, and I think that is probably the biggest upside of this. And if we are going to learn a lesson and if we do, if we choose not to learn that lesson, frankly, then uh, more fool us because then we, we're asking for trouble. And now the sound effects. Rorschach test. Oh, OK. Right. OK. Headphones in quietly, hands in lap, paying attention. My neighbors in stage two of the lockdown finally allowed <laughs> out of their house. <laughs> Me at three o'clock in the morning wondering what the future holds. <laughs> uh, it's a Labrador, um, and it needs to be put down. <laughs> Sadly, I mean, it's a lovely Labrador, but it's had better days. Oh, nature. I miss nature. I want to go to that place where those birds wake me up in the morning and I'm grumpy with them. Oh, yes. No. Oh, Okavango. I, I must go there. Never been, actually. Must get to Okavango. <laughs> Um, the sounds that the treadmills at Virgin Active are going to make when they first get started up, uh, whenever, whenever somebody goes back to the gym one day, because, oh, I mean, those poor guys, I feel so sorry for the personal trainers and those guys who can't do their jobs right now. I mean, that's a very serious part of this lockdown is people haven't been able to have that interactivity. And lots of people are really struggling at the moment because they're very busy as personal trainers, but you lock the gym and they have to rethink what they do. That sounds like when I first got onto my bicycle the other day, on the day more, or the first day that we were allowed to get out and go and do some exercise. And those were my knees, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. The Upside of Down is an important read that will arm you with facts, leave you more knowledgeable about South Africa, wiser about opportunities, 
and most of all, will inspire you. One of the multiple choice questions that Bruce asks in the book is, what would a thousand rand invested in the JSE on the day Hendrik Verfoot took South Africa out of the Commonwealth in 1961 be worth today? And these are the three choices you have. Is it A, 760,000 rand, B, 7.6 million, C, 17.6 million? The answer is interesting. And to find out, you should buy the book, which, like the 1,000 rand invested in the JSE in 1961, is a great investment. Thank you for listening to I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews. I'm a Booker. I'm a Booker. I'm a Booker Booker. I'm a Booker 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 Booker. I'm a Booker.